Hello, listeners. Been wondering how you can help the show? Probably not. But here are five things you can do. One, subscribe. Support the show by clicking the subscription link in the show notes. Two, review on iTunes, on our website, www.afraidofnothingpodcast.com, or on whatever app you listen to. Three, donate. When you go to our website, click the cute coffee cup icon. Or, in the show notes, click the subscription link. Four, share. Sharing really is caring. Tell your friends, and even your enemies, to check out the show. Five, watch. Wait a minute, it's a podcast, not a movie. Actually, it's both. Check the show notes to find out where to watch the documentary. You can also rent it on Prime Video. That's it. Oh, one last thing. Enjoy this episode. Hey, folks, sometimes you don't need a cute intro. You need to just get to the great content, and that's the case tonight. We have with us James Shubsky. That's right, James Shubsky and Bob Heskey. A lot of alliteration heaven we have going on right here. But James is an interesting cat. He is located out of the Columbia River Gorge, which is like the paranormal Jurassic Park you've never heard of. But you will tonight. So if you like cryptids, the unexplained, and conspiracy theories, put on your tinfoil hat. In a world where nothing is known, nothing is certain, reality is not real. Wake up! Be afraid of nothing. I'm Bob Heskey. Robert. The host with the This is my podcast, based on my paranormal documentary, Afraid of Nothing. Each episode, we talk to people who see life and the afterlife through a different lens. Join me. Who is this large man? And what's he doing in our bedroom? As we lift the veil and open our minds to see beyond our eyes lie. This is Afraid of Nothing. James Shubsky is the Chief Operating Officer of Margie's Outdoor Store, located deep within the Columbia River Gorge in Washington State. In 2022, James Store initiated a paranormal reporting program, which has now received well over 100 reports of strange activity in the Gorge area. James is a former volunteer search and rescue EMT, a wildland firefighter, a mountain guide, and a highly decorated U.S. Army infantry veteran. He earned a degree in communications from the Evergreen State College and has enjoyed a decades-long career in that field, working for companies like Wizards of the Coast, the makers of Dungeons & Dragons, and Magic the Gathering. He currently volunteers his time as the leader of the Clickitat Ape Cat Research Team. What's that, you say? Well, stick around, and you're about to find out. Well, we have another great guest. It's... uh... James Shubsky with Bob Heskey is going to be a lot of fun. But James is a, another great guest brought to me by Michelle Freed, who has given me a, a bunch of great guests on this show. And when you think about paranormal hotspots, I'm in Massachusetts, and I think Salem, I think the Bridgewater Triangle, I think in Lemonster, not far from me, there's a thing called Monsterland. But boy, there is a hotspot uh, a continent away in Washington State, and our guest is going to talk to us about that tonight. Welcome, James Shubsky. Robert, thank you for having me. Your story is one of the really unique ones. I'll set it up briefly, but I'd ask you to please just add a lot to it. Long story short, you had a mother-in-law that tragically passed. She had this great outdoor store. You went out and took it over, but kind of another side business came out of that. So With that as a setup, you want to talk to us about Margie's Outdoor Store. Yeah, my pleasure. So Margie's Outdoor Store is located in Bingen, Washington. 
which is uh, on the southern border of Washington State and right along the Columbia River. And we sit in the smack dab middle of the Columbia River Gorge. So yeah, my mother-in-law was a pretty successful businesswoman and uh, she had started a couple of businesses and sadly she passed away about a little over two years ago. And uh, so I came down to run her businesses. One of those businesses was a small store, a Margie's Outdoor store. And you know, pretty soon after I got here, people started walking through the door and telling us um, really amazing stories. You know, we were hearing stories about Bigfoot encounters and UFO encounters and things like that. And on a personal level, I found it completely fascinating. So we put up a big sign in the window and it said, file paranormal reports here. And it said, you know, Sasquatch sightings, UFO sightings, ghost experiences, portal openings, fey mischief. And we were um, pretty serious about it because the people who were coming in had real stories to tell. You know, when I talked to my staff about this plan, I said, we will treat these people with respect and we will not act like they're crazy and um, we'll hear what they have to say. We'll ask intelligent questions and we'll make them feel welcome in our store. And that has proven to be one of the most rewarding and amazing parts of the whole experience for us. So just to give you a little bit of context, we have, we started this in, oh, I'd say, like late February of last year. And so in the almost year and a half since then, we've had close to 160 paranormal reports in the store. So let me just stop you there because that's not a heavily populated place, right? So that's got to be a pretty heavy per capita of the people who live in the neighborhood that come in with the story or? Yeah. So, um, so we're located in the Cascade Mountains. The Columbia River Gorge is the only sea level passage through the Cascade Mountains. Many of your listeners may be on the East Coast. So Cascade Mountains start in lower British Columbia and they extend all the way to Northern California. It's about 80,000 square miles. And uh, if you took the 10 smallest states in the country and you combine their landmass, the Cascade Mountain Range would be larger than that. Uh-huh. Now, those 10 states average about a little over 4,000 people per square mile. Out here in the Columbia River Gorge, so the gorge is 85 miles long, we average about 10 people per square mile. And when you get into the true rugged wilderness of the Cascade Mountains, there's many places that it's zero people per square mile. So it is uh, pretty remote. Now, the Columbia River Gorge in the 80s was designated as a national scenic area because it is stunningly beautiful. A lot of people come here to vacation. Right across the river from me is Hood River, Oregon, and it's considered the windsurfing capital of the world. And so people come out here, there's rafting and bicycling and rock climbing, mountain climbing, paragliding. I mean, it really is an adventurer's wonderland. I first encountered the gorge back in the 1980s. I came uh, from Ohio and I uh, was an infantry soldier stationed at Fort Lewis, which is about 200 miles north of here uh, in the Puget Sound, kind of south of Seattle. And my army buddies and I, we would come down here to rock climb and adventure. And I thought it was just an amazing place. Two years ago, uh, when my mother-in-law passed away, my wife and I and our kids had the opportunity to move down here. And we jumped at it because there's no place in the world quite like it. So did you know, did your mother-in-law tell you kind of what you're stepping into in terms of all the cryptid and paranormal activity? Or was that something you found out once you got there? So when we would adventure down here back when I was 19 years old as a soldier on our leave, we encountered uh, some of these places. There's a place called Horse Thief Butte, and it looks like a regular desert mesa. I should explain. So the Cascade Mountains they form a rain shadow. So on the western half of the Cascade Mountains, it is Pacific Northwest rainforest. So over 100 inches of rain a year. And that's where my house is. And then on the eastern slopes, it is desert with less than 10 inches of rain. And so my army buddies and I would come down and we, you know, rock climb and camp and adventure out here. And we found this place called Horse Thief Butte. Now, when you see Horse Thief Butte from the road, it looks like a typical desert mesa, you know, sort of the steep walls, flat top. But when you get up into it, you find that it is riddled with a labyrinth of hidden canyonways and amphitheaters. Uh, There are petroglyphs on the walls and ways to climb up on top of this thing. And it is clearly a spiritually powerful place. Many 
Native Americans had, you know, spirit quests and things there. You know, I was going to ask about that. I was going to ask about if there are a lot of Native Americans out there. And I'm sorry for interjecting, but one one quick question. It's part Amazon jungle. It's like a, it's it's a tropical rainforest on one part. It's a desert. It's volcanoes. There's a range of ecosystems out there, correct? Yeah. The gorge was formed by a series of apocalyptic events, and I am not overstating it one bit. Uh, so the Columbia River itself has been in existence, they estimate, for about 20 million years. So it had been flowing down through eastern Washington, and then it takes a sort of a, a hook to the west and then flows out to the Pacific Ocean. And it drains like a five or six state area. It is the largest river uh, that drains in the Pacific Ocean in both North and South America. So it is an enormous flowing uh, thing, and it's been flowing that way for, like I said, 20 million years. Then about 15 million years ago, these fissures opened in the earth near the Washington-Idaho border. And great fountains of lava, like Hawaii-style lava, started jetting out of this thing. And they estimate that there were over 300 eruptions. But the quantity of lava that flowed out was utterly massive. There are some places here in Washington state where that lava uh, has stacked up, and it's three miles deep. If you took all of the lava that erupted out of these fissures, you could cover the entire United States in 60 foot deep of the lava that came out of it. And in some cases, it flowed 300 miles actually through the original Columbia River Valley. So it had formed this wide valley, the Columbia River, as rivers do. And then as this lava was erupting and, and spewing from the earth, it filled that entire river valley And flowed all the way to the ocean. And so it was this incredible apocalypse by fire. Unlike anything, I think there's maybe two other places on Earth that have seen that volume of lava. And when the the kind of lava that was flowing out is called basalt, it cools. uh, It cools into these hexagonal columns. And so throughout the gorge, you see these, you know, soaring hexagonal columns. They're just like stacks of cliff walls. You know, it's funny. You mentioned Kauai. I went to Maui and, and Kauai, and when you were talking about the gorge area and the different ecosystems, I mean, Kauai's like that because on one side, they get 300 inches of rain a year, and on the other side, they get like maybe 10, right? And it's a small island. <laughs> There's a volcano on that island, too. It, yeah. That's what first came to mind when I was heard on the podcast about this place and the diversity of the ecosystems and how it was formed. Yeah, it's phenomenal. So that was happening like 15 to 12 million years ago. About 2 million years ago, the Cascade Mountains started rising. And within 40 miles of my store, there are three stratovolcanoes. You've got Mount Hood, Mount St. Helens, which famously erupted in uh, 1980, yep. and Mount Adams, which is has been a UFO hotspot uh, since UFOs have been a thing in the United States. And so you've got this very strong horizontal flow of energy with the Columbia River and then the lavas. And then you have these very strong vertical energies rising up these mountains. There's also this crazy tectonic thing that's going on that's sort of twisting the plates and buckling some of these rock formations. But then the thing that a lot of people are really interested to hear is that we were a part of those younger, driest cataclysmic floods. And I don't know if you're familiar with authors like Graham Hancock or Randall Carlson. They talk about this thing. So what happened was uh, the theory that makes the most sense to me is they call it the Younger Dryas Impact Hypothesis. And they theorized that 12,800 years ago, a series of meteorites or asteroids impacted the Canadian ice shelf. So back during the Ice Age, uh, you had you know these miles thick Ice Age glaciers up there covered all of Canada. And what happened was these meteorites impacted it and flash melted it, creating some of the largest floods on Earth. And the entire... Eastern Washington was inundated and water that was over on the eastern side, 300 feet deep, and then uh, flowing at 60 to 70 miles an hour, carrying boulders and icebergs and anything that was in its path. Well, it gets stopped at the beginning of the gorge, a place called Wallula Gap, and it created this gigantic hydraulic dam. And then that shot down the gorge. And in some places in the gorge, these floodwaters were 1,100 feet deep. I was going to ask how deep the gorge is. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Well, I can tell you that the gorge, like I said, Columbia River is the only sea level passage to the Cascade Mountains. And there are places here where in less than half a mile, you go from sea level to 2,500 feet. Oh, okay. uh, some of the mountains around us, like 
uh, Mount Adams is uh, 12,000 feet high and Mount Hood is a little over 10,000 feet high. So, I mean, we're talking about dramatic, breathtaking landscapes. Well, as these cataclysmic floods flowed through here, they stripped away any of the soil that was there and they laid bare these volcanic rocks. And what that did was, well, it created this beautiful, dramatic landscape. And it also created the largest concentration of waterfalls anywhere in America. And so we've got more waterfalls here in the Columbia River Gorge than they have in Hawaii. And it is just stunningly beautiful. The And then there's these caves. So the all of this lava coming off of the stratovolcanoes created these vast lava fields. And these lava tubes were created. And we have some of the longest caves in the country here. But now I'm thinking of Jurassic Park. <laughs> now I'm thinking of like, you know, what a perfect, I mean, my God, it sounds like, you know, a, a cut out of the old world, you know, it's, inc- it's incredible. Well, I have to tell you, I am uh, an adventure nerd from way back. So, you know, of course I was a U.S. Army infantry soldier. I was a wildland forest firefighter. I was a mountain guide and, and more recently a search and rescue EMT. And so for me, you know, you couldn't have created a cooler area, like an area that's concentrated where, you know, I start my day at home in the rainforest and I drive to work in the desert. I mean, like, wow. And, you know, our weekends are filled with these amazing adventures out here. And so the, uh, the whole gorge is just this phenomenal area that is unlike any place in the world. And excuse me, we've got a train going by. <laughs> wow. Well, and that's part of the story, you know, so um, a lot of people ask me why I think we've got so much paranormal activity out here. And, you know, so you layer that incredible adventure area. Like it's like a video game, open world map out here. Sure. And then you layer in this incredibly dense paranormal soup of, we have UFO sightings and orb sightings. There are portals that seem to open near the mountains. And even sometimes by roadsides, we have, of course, Sasquatch is a famous character out here. And, in the county where my house is, Camino County, there are laws on the book where it is illegal to hunt and kill Sasquatch. You go to jail and get fined thousands oh of dollars. Oh, my God. Yeah, so like, that is great. Curious about it out here. Real quick, I want to throw in real quick at James. So we're going to – just full disclosure to the audience, the listeners, we're going to spend you know, the next 15 or 20 minutes talking about – that activity. And then the last part, we're going to talk about a potentially genetically engineered uh, type of creature that was uh, was created. So that's how we're lining it up. But I did have one question since you mentioned you were a search and rescue. In a place like that, I think of missing 411, right? So yep. do you have many missing people or or is that kind of rare where you're at? There, there are plenty of stories of missing folks out here. And people often ask questions for cryptids like, why aren't there any Bigfoot you know, bodies. Like if there was a body, that'd be something. And I don't think people really have any sense of just how freaking enormous and how ruggedly the wilderness is out here. I would spend a weekend with my search and rescue team up near Seattle, and we would search a 300 yard by 300 yard area. And it would take 40 people all weekend to, you know, we'd be looking for bones or weapons or whatever it was from a suspected crime scene. And if you had 40 people and it takes you a weekend to search a place that's right off the side of the road. Like it is impossible to search 80,000 square miles of the most rugged terrain imaginable. And not only that, like it's very common to find prey animals like deer carcasses or elk carcasses or things like that. But when an apex predator is dying, they don't just lay down in the woods. They hold up, you know, and especially with a Sasquatch creature that might be, might have social traditions around disposing of bodies. The idea that you would even, if it's a small population, that you'd have a chance of finding it is astronomically high. Like there's no, very difficult to explain how vast it is out here and how unpopulated it is. And, you know, that 80,000 miles, you're talking about terrain that varies in elevation. I'm not joking a little bit, from sea level to 1,500 feet above sea level. And so it's just a vast, wild and rugged place. And things could hide out here. There is this lava field. We call it Broke Leg Barrows. And it's basically this area where lava had flowed through, and it's created this crazy set of micro canyons and jagged rocks everywhere. It's an area about the size of the island of Manhattan. Compasses don't work there. 
because of the magnetism in the rocks, your compass won't work. And like I said, as a soldier and a firefighter and a search and rescue guy, I've traveled through just about every kind of train there is. I don't think I could walk a mile in there and not get hurt. And so there are so many places that things can hide. And there are no trails and roads that go through this thing. Well, that's going to be dangerous for the search and rescue people, that they can't go too deep because if their compasses don't work, I mean, how do they – they they could get lost, right? I mean, it would be uh, – yeah. oh, God. Absolutely. Like I said, it's just a phenomenal place, and there are so many strange mysteries. And, and you were saying before, like, what I was really finding amazing is that people were coming in and telling us these stories about these amazing experiences they were having. But, you know, there's a guy who comes in. He sees Sasquatch regularly. He's got – Hair samples, he's seen children Sasquatch. He says they have fur, whereas the adults have hair. He's seen some that are 13 feet tall. And they apparently have to channel through his property. And there are stories out here that the Native Americans have treaties with the Sasquatch people about areas of berry picking and salmon gathering and mushroom gathering. And so when you live out here, like you absolutely know somebody who has seen Sasquatch or the Klickitat ape cat or a UFO or an orb. It's just part of living out here. I, I think I heard you say at one podcast, the scariest of all the type of things, or the one that has the toughest for you to wrap your mind around is the small humanoid. And this is a fairly uncommon report. So like I said, we probably had 150, 160 reports, you know, and some of those people write them down. Some of them, they submitted them on our website, martysoutdoorstore.com. And some people come in and they just tell us their story verbally, or sometimes I get stopped in the grocery store and someone tells me their experience. And so of those reports, there's maybe seven or eight of them that talk about small humanoids that people see. And these are creatures that are two to three feet tall, and they have unusual features. Uh, we've had stories, we've had people draw pictures of them that have you know sort of large ears. And there's another one. Uh, in fact, one of my employees was driving home at night. It's around one o'clock in the morning, and he saw a strange creature at the side of the road. He said it was maybe as tall as the hood of his car and very skinny with a head that looked kind of like a praying mantis. Wow. Uh, he only saw it for, you know, four or five seconds. And just as he passed it, all the lights, the center council of his car went out and his phone started, you know, its alarm started going off and stuff like that. About 300 yards down the road, he felt dizzy and had to pull over. And he thought about whether he should go back and check it out because he knows that, you know, I'm interested in these kind of stories and things like that. He's like, hell no, I'm not going back to see what that was. And he continued on his way home. Uh, and to me, like, it's for, for whatever reason, it's easy for me to believe in Sasquatch. It's easy for me to believe in a giant black panther creature crawling around Klickitat County. It's easy for me to believe in UFOs or lights in the sky. These small people, though, that's one that I don't have a real strong frame of reference to understand. You know, I recently was very lucky. Uh, there was a guy out here in the 1990s who was actually paid by the government to research Bigfoot. And I was recently gifted his research archive. And he has tons of reports uh, from the Native Americans that talk about little people. And in some of these stories, these little people look like perfectly formed humans that are 18 to 30 inches tall they leave tiny little footprints in the ground. Some of the stories say that they created the petroglyphs out here. Have you heard of, because uh, we have that out here, it's called puckwudgies. Have you heard of that phrase? Uh, that name sounds familiar, but I think I'm more familiar with the, the Northwest version of those guys. Yeah, so a puckwudgie, that's actually have it out here in New York and stuff. That's like two to three foot tall. They're like goblin-like creatures, mm -hmm. and they're in the forest. They're almost like protectors. They're kind of shapeshifters that can transform into animals. They're very mischievous and also dangerous, too. Yeah. And very bold, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but that's that's kind of the version out here. Yeah, to me, the parallels to the stories of fairies and fake creatures in Europe are remarkably similar. To me, that's one of the things that, you know, when I talk about paranormal, I am referring to things that don't seem to abide by the laws of nature as we currently understand them. And so that doesn't mean that they're not real. What it means is that we just don't understand how they work. But when you look at the earliest forms of human thought, so these are cave paintings like in Lascaux, France, there are 40,000-year-old illustrations on these cave walls of impossible creatures. So human-animal hybrids, therianthropes is the scientific name for them, where they're combinations of humans and, and other animals and other creatures that are clearly 
biologically impossible. So humans with antlers and, you know, the, the body of a, a bison and the legs and hands of a human. And so throughout the human experience, for as long as we've been recording our thoughts, we have been recording things which seem impossible by the rules of the physical world that we spend our, most of our time in every day. Well, what's crazy is, you know, that's on land. If you look at the ocean, you can imagine we don't know 90%, just like in the universe, right? Uh, we, we, don't, we probably have not uncovered a, a wide range of, of living uh, species that are super weird looking, you know? So I, I was going to jump from uh, the, the humanoids, Bigfoot. Is that what they call them out there? Do they call them Sasquatch or Bigfoot out there? It's pretty much both. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of businesses like there's Bigfoot Coffee in my hometown. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different places. So Bigfoot's a very common name. Sasquatch is a very common name. What do people think when they come to your store? Because there's a version of Bigfoot that's paranormal, right? Like it's there and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. Like it can it time slip. Yeah. Or there's a version of Bigfoot that's this angry monster that you don't want to mess with. What are the more common versions of Bigfoot that you hear? So the guy that sees them the most who comes into the store, the guy who has some pinch points that run through his property, he's certain that they are biological creatures. Okay. There's an area up here uh, we call Monster Mountain because there are so many Bigfoot encounters that happen up there where people will be you know, panning for gold and they'll hear four distinct individuals calling out from around them. They'll have you know, rocks uh, thrown near them, stuff like that. We don't get a lot of reports of any hostile activity, so we don't see, you know, Bigfoot attacking people. That's never a story that we hear. Although there's some historical stories about that, they don't seem to be common around recently. But the thing that I find fascinating is that guy who's convinced that they're a normal biological creature also says that he believes they can teleport short distances. And so, like, uh, uh, <laughs> like you'll see it, and then a second later, it'll be a thousand yards, or excuse me, a hundred yards away. And uh, so, you know, how he how he internally comes to grips with that, I'm not sure. A lot of the reports we get, I mean, it seems very much like you're dealing with a biological entity. But it does seem to demonstrate like some of this phasing in and phasing out of the ability to see it, teleporting behavior. To me, that tells me that there is something going on that is perhaps it has augmented abilities or it's doing things that we don't normally have access to in our everyday life well it knows how to use the energy like there's tremendous energy like from the water right yeah. or from the or probably from the whole place and the volcanoes there's probably a lot of energy maybe it knows how to tap into it and harness it maybe a lot of those creatures do they know how to tap into the energy and use it for their uh, their benefit like that yeah one of the theories that seems to make sense to me is that you know here in the gorge there have been these you know all of these traumatic geologic events and I think that if there are parallel worlds or, you know, pocket dimensions or some of the things that the Department of Energy is spending money on researching, if those things are real, a place like this where there's been so much geologic trauma, it may be that the boundaries between the worlds have been worn thin. And so it's easier for things to slip into our world here or for a person to inadvertently slip into other realms of existence and not even be aware of it. I'd love to talk to you in two years. I've been doing this podcast for three years, and the more guests I have, the more people I talk to, the more questions I have about the paranormal. I don't get answers. I get more questions, and I'm kind of interested to see what it's going to be like for you in a couple of years. Yeah. So, yeah, with the Bigfoot, um, to, it's sort of like a neighbor. I mean, like, or it's akin to, like, seeing a bear. Uh, it's a rare thing, but when you see it, you're like, wow, that was pretty incredible. And what's amazing is a lot of these reports are pretty fleeting. Like, it's not... Like people are sitting down and, you know, having long conversations or whatever. It's, yeah, it was there and I walking next to us or like, you know, through, through some trees and seeing me follow us or, you know, we saw footprints or whatever it is. And the encounters are usually pretty brief. You know, of course, some people come into the store and they're having fun and they, you know, make up a tale and they're pretty easy to spot. It's no big deal to us. You know, we're not trying to prove anything to anybody. And obvious when someone's just having fun. But some of the stories are just so everyday and mundane that it's not even a sensational story that they're telling. It's just a everyday, yeah, I saw this weird thing in the woods kind of a deal. I want to talk about some of the other things as well. I would imagine you don't get a lot of pictures of Bigfoot, but I would imagine you do get probably from people that report stuff, UFOs or orbs. You probably Those are probably the most uh, cases that you get actual yeah. photos with. Yeah, I've captured a couple of pictures of orbs myself, and 
about three miles uh, west of our store, there's a mountain called Underwood Mountain. It's probably about uh, 3,500 feet high. And in February, someone took a picture of it and they were looking at it later and they realized that there's something floating above it. We did some image enhancement on it. It's clearly an object in the sky above the mountain. And they took the picture from 11 miles away. So not a lot of data there, but there's clearly no wings or rotors on the thing. And it conforms to the classic sort of cigar shape, like a disc from the side kind of a looking thing. Yep. And, you know, when you talk about UFOs, Washington State has the highest number of UFO reports per capita in the country. And oh. we've had close to 7,000 UFO reports. They date back to the beginning of the whole flying saucer craze. There's a guy named Kenneth Arnold who was flying a plane just north of here by Mount Rainier, and he saw nine saucer-shaped objects. But a lot of people don't know about that report. So that was the report that sort of ushered in the flying saucer era in America and picked up by lots of media and everything else. And then shortly thereafter, the Roswell crash occurred and the modern UFO phenomenon really picked up steam. Was he a pilot or was he in the military? Or He was flying a private plane between sort of near the Puget Sound area towards Yakima, which is basically the rainforest of the desert, over Mount Rainier, which is the tallest mountain in Washington State, 14,400 feet tall. He saw these nine objects flying at an incredible speed. Uh, he described them very well. They flew from basically Mount Rainier to Mount Adams. And so that's like in our, in our backyard out here. And so we have had many, many reports of triangular-shaped ones, disc-shaped ones, cigar-shaped ones. It's pretty clear that uh, we've also had lots of orbs. There is a about 25 minutes from our store a place called East SETI Ranch, and it stands for Enlightened Contact with Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And Jim Guilford, kind of famous in the UFO circles, if you bring 45 bucks in your own lawn chair, uh, you can sit out at his ranch and watch UFOs fly around Mount Adams. Oh. <laughs> People come from all over the world to check it out. The many come skeptics and they leave believe. Have you done that? Have you done that, James? Have you gone out there? You know, we got here two years ago in the height of COVID, and so he had some unusual requirements uh, related to COVID. And, of course, during the winter, he's closed. He's just now opening up again, I think, Memorial Day weekend. And so I'm going to be getting out there as soon as I can. But like I said, my wife and I have been driving down Highway 14 on the Washington side. We've seen, you know, green floating orbs over the river and out by Beacon Rock. So Beacon Rock is this sort of 840-foot tall core of a ancient volcano that had its skirts stripped off during that epic flooding. So there's a trail pinned to the side of the cliff. Incredible. I mean, dogs and kids go up this thing now, but you're literally walking up, you know, on these little four foot wide with a railing uh, trails that go up to the top of this thing. And I think you said there's a UFO hangar nearby. Is that correct? Yeah, that would be on Mount Adams. And so there people have pictures of a physical door that is open towards one of the, the secondary summits of that mountain. They've seen they claim to have seen vehicles flying in and out of there. We had a guy come into the store and said, yeah, I want to talk to you about the portal I saw on top of Mount Hood. And we said, oh, you mean the, the hangar door? He said, no, no, no. This seemed like it was an opening in the sky next to the summit in the air. And he said, you know, he thought there was something wrong with his vision and he rubbed his eyes and he looked at it again and again. And it seemed like it was an opening in the sky leading to a different colored sky. And <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he said, yeah, that's all I have to tell you. I mean, nothing came and abducted me or anything else. I just saw this thing floating in the air next to Mount Adams. And we've had stories like that of people driving down Highway 14 and near the town of Lyle, where it's just off the side of the road. They see a portal sort of hovering. It looks like a hole cut into the air. And the background behind it is not the same as the background of the landscape. And, and this is ongoing because so, I've interviewed people like in New York, you know, where there was a period in the from 19, like maybe eight years or what is usually a time period where there's a lot of activity. Mm -hmm. But this this has been ongoing for where you're at. It's just it's yeah. Wow. Like I said, I think it has something to do with the geologic forces that occurred here and how things are. So all these intersecting energies, I mean. It's the only thing that I can come up with that makes any sense as to why this particular place is so unique. And you, when you get here, well, it's jaw-droppingly beautiful. I mean, like, honestly, you, you just look at it and, and it's amazing. Even if you're not spiritually sensitive, like, you feel like there's something magical going on here. Like, it's, it's an inescapable feeling. And 
you know, the people who settle here, and there's a lot of restrictions because we're a national scenic area in terms of, you know, what can be developed and everything else. And it's very limited. In fact, there's very, very few spaces left that can be developed in the gorge because it's a protected area. Whether because of that or in addition to that, the government has been out here and we've had many reports of strange, like clearly aircraft, not a UFO, like people have reported black helicopters that make no sound flying through the canyons around here. We've had folks report that uh, they were hiking and dude showed up in a black SUV wearing suits and told them they couldn't be there. And so we've had numerous reports like that. You know, you had mentioned earlier that not far from here, about 100 miles from my store, 100 miles up upriver, is the Hanford nuclear site. Before you get to that, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the Clickitat uh, ape cat. So just if we could just cover that, then let's talk about Hanford, if you don't mind. Yeah. So I have to tell you, like, it's so much fun because, you know, a couple times a week, a Scooby-Doo mystery walks through our front door and we <laughs> talk to somebody and like something amazing is happening. And so last April, a guy came in the store and he had, he, Margie had helped his family. Margie was a pharmacist before she became a storekeeper. And so she had helped his mother with some kind of medical issue she was having uh, that her doctors couldn't figure out. And so basically a friend of the family, even so it took him 45 minutes to work up the courage to tell me about this incredible counter he had. And so he was up near Buck Creek, which is maybe four miles from the store. And it, it's a, one of the tributaries that leads into the Columbia River. He said that he was orienteering with a compass. And the compass started acting weirdly, like he was bending away from north. The needle was bending away from north. And he looked up across the creek, and he saw this enormous black panther creature. And he said it was very muscular, had fur that was four to five inches long. And it stood four to five feet tall to shoulder. All right. And so before I get into the really phenomenal part of his description, I'm just going to give you a little context. So, of course, we have cougars out here, but cougars are only ever tan or red. Like when cougars get dark, they never go black. We've talked to many wildlife biologists and they all say, yep, no such thing as black cougars. It's not a thing. And so there are no cougars out here uh, that are black, according to science. Also, he described this creature as being four to five feet tall to shoulder. So that is bigger than a tiger. And a tiger is the largest living cat on the planet. Now, there is one creature in the fossil record which matches its size. And it's a, an Ice Age cat called the Panthera atrox. It's the American lion. And it is the one creature that existed in Washington State before the floods where uh, it stood four to five feet tall to shoulder. It was the most massive cat ever to have existed and both by total volume and as a proportion of its body mass, it had the largest brain cavity of any cat that ever lived. Just to be clear, this creature that this man was describing to me shouldn't exist based on its coloration and its size. Quick question. If this stood up on its hind legs, would it be bigger than a grizzly bear? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've had people say that they've seen it leap across a two-lane road and its body covered the distance of the two lanes. Oh, God. Yeah. Jesus. And of course, that's stretched out with its legs long and its back long and its yeah. and everything else. But so enormous creature. And then, you know, he paused and he said, well, and the strangest thing is that it had a flattened face that looked like a monkey. It had intelligent ape-like eyes. And it said the best way I can describe it, it was like a cross between a, a monkey and a big cat. Mm. And I thought to myself, wow, I have never heard of anything like this in my life. I was amazed by it, you know, and so I tried to, we got a couple more details and a lot of the details I hold back because you know, we want to be sure if other people bring in reports and there's some, yeah. some things to, to, to verify with. The next day I told my employees, Oh, we got a really cool report last night. Um, this big black cat, you know, big, very strong. And one of my employees, Missy started shaking. Now Missy is the kind of gal who is incredibly honest. She doesn't even like playing practical jokes on her coworkers because that's kind of like lying. And I could tell Missy was emotionally charged as I described this creature. And she said, James, I've seen that thing myself. I was driving to work down Clickitat Canyon one morning, right at sunrise. And I saw that thing walking when I was driving down the road and I pulled the car over to look at it. Now she didn't get a chance to see its face, but she said, yes, it was enormous, very, very muscular, long black tail. And she said it entered a tall patch a small patch of tall grass 
and then it never came out again. She eventually, like I said, parked the car, investigated, and there was nothing in that patch of tall grass. She wondered if she should warn the houses that were nearby that there's some kind of giant cat predator nearby. But she figured they'd think she was crazy. And in fact, when she told her family about it, they did think she was crazy. And they told her that she probably had seen a cow. Well, you know you know what? I think she's crazy getting out and checking unless she had like a shotgun or something. <laughs> I mean, she went, she went out and checked and went in the grass. Oh, my God. Yeah. So And so we've had uh, – and so once I got that second report, and these are, in my mind, credible, right? I don't – you know, anyone else can wonder. But for me, Missy's very credible. And this other gentleman who was a friend of the family – Credible, he seemed earnest and sincere. So, because we run the store, I've got a contract with the radio station, and so we started putting up radio ads. Has anyone seen? At that time, we we're calling it the Ebony Ape Cat, and we put up, you know, signs at the trails asking people if they had seen it to come and file a report. And since then, like I said, we've had fifty to sixty reports, some from senior law enforcement officials. Some of the reports go back thirty years, and everyone describes this enormous black cat. A muscular black cat with a long black tail. But half of those reports say that it's four to five feet tall to shoulder. And five or six of them say that it's got this face that looks like a monkey. So, you know, I did research on this and there is a Native American tradition, especially in the Great Lakes area, of a creature called Meshepeshu. And they are what they call underwater panther protectors. So when Native Americans talk about underwater, they're talking about something that comes from a different realm. There's this long history of these creatures and one of the descriptions of Meshepeshu is that it looks like a black panther with the face of a man. And I thought, wow, that's pretty yeah. interesting. Of course, in ancient Egypt, there's Bast, who's that uh, goddess that looks like a panther woman. Uh, and in fact, all over the world, uh, the black panther is revered as a spiritual creature uh, that fulfills the role of protector. And that's true whether you're in Asia, whether you're in India, whether you're in Egypt, whether you're in South America, whether you're in North America with these um, Shepeshu panther protectors. So all over the world, there is this tradition of supernatural black panthers, uh, which I found utterly fascinating. And here in the Columbia River Gorge, we have petroglyphs that look like a cat with wavy water lines underneath its head. And so... When I look at the constellation of clues that we have, you know, we've had people report that their batteries in their headlamp and their phone die simultaneously when they're looking at it. We had that compass thing. So electromagnetic disturbances are very common with paranormal creatures. So that's a check mark for me. Impossible biology. So we've got the black coloration and the size and then this monkey-like face. So that's another check mark. When people encounter paranormal things, they know that they're in the presence of something unusual or special. And that's part of many of the reports that we've had. And so as you go down the checklist of, you know, the ability to phase in and out of uh, our ability to see it, uh, we've got that in many of the reports. And so, you know, there's a good chance that we're dealing with something that is paranormal in origin, uh, something that is not native to the physical world as we commonly understand it. Well, other than um, its appearance, does it do anything supernatural? Is it like Bigfoot? Does it disappear or cover distance and it's here, then gone? Or is it just the appearance of it? We do get a lot of the here, then gone type of stuff. And so that phasing in and phasing out does seem to be one of its characteristics. You know, and the fact that there are so many reports and they have different descriptions. So shape-shifting is a common feature amongst paranormal creatures. And the fact that people are seeing different aspects of it, some very large, some not as large. And, you know, I talked about that East Seti Ranch, that uh, place where people go see the UFOs. Well, apparently one of the races of beings that they talk to is a race of feline humanoids. And in fact, their logo contains the face of a lion. And so, yeah, in terms of actual behavior, a lot of the stories are pretty mundane. I was driving my ATV, this giant black panther jumped across the trail, scared the crap out of me, and I never saw it again. Yeah. So it's stuff like that, or we get a lot of stories of it leaping across roads, like full two, both lanes of roads easily covers the distance between both of them. Yeah, we, we, we should say before we go to Hanford is that you've had very modest experiences because you've only been there 18 months and you're running a store and you're doing stuff, you know, you're not like actually going out uh, cryptive hunt, hunting or doing stuff, though you've recently started doing that. So, yeah. but you have seen a couple, I mean, like you saw a black cougar, right? Was that, uh, or bobcat? Yeah. Yeah. And so there's only been 20 reported sightings of uh, black bobcats in the history of the United States. And I was following up on a Sasquatch lead up on a Monte Cristo natural preserve 
of the area they call Monster Mountain. And there was this black bobcat running up the Forest Service Road. And I've had, we've had two other reports of black bobcats. And so I've also seen, and this was very curious, we've seen black wild rabbits. Really? Now, that's not an impossible thing. Yeah. Oh, wow. But the Columbia River Gorge is sort of geofenced. Like the geology and the geography make it sort of this confined ecosystem. And there are plants and animals here that don't exist anywhere else in the world. And so it may be that something about this area is causing creatures to express black coloration gene. You know, my daughter, we were out four wheeling out in the woods behind her house. And she said, oh, dad, I see a snake out of the side of the car. And it's got frills on the side of its head. And she was very clear in describing these two like fan-like frills on the side of the snake's head. And I made her describe it to me a couple different times. And the thing of it is, is there are no frilled snakes in North America. There are no frilled snakes in the world. And there are some frilled lizards, but they're not three feet long with no legs. And my daughter didn't realize she was seeing anything unusual, but there it was. And so we have these, all these reports of these very unusual creatures and things happening here. And like I said, the only thing that makes sense to me is that, you know, something is going on with the geology or geography or the energy that flows through here that makes it a place where these things are just more likely to happen. Or it, some of it could be man-made or uh, man-genetically modified, which we can talk about Hanford, I guess, right? The nuclear facility? Absolutely. So uh, Hanford was a part of the Manhattan Project. Could you explain the Manhattan Project very quickly for our listeners that don't know? Absolutely. So during World War II, the Allies were very concerned that the Nazis had already started atomic programs, you know, nuclear bomb-making programs. And so once we realized that, we created this top-secret project called the Manhattan Project, and that was the project where Oppenheimer created the bomb. So, of course, Los Alamos, very famous. That's where the bombs were designed and engineered and tested down there in, in New Mexico. But a big part of the story most people don't know about is that Plutonium is an element that doesn't exist in nature. And they created the Hanford nuclear site to build the world's first nuclear reactor to turn uranium into plutonium. And so they chose the Columbia River area because it provided them with cooling water that they needed. It also provided them with electricity because there's many hydroelectric dams out here. In fact, The Columbia River produces so much energy that it could power the city of Seattle and seven more cities just like it. It is the biggest hydroelectric power producing uh, river in the United States. And so they had power from the Columbia River in the form of electricity. They had cooling water from the Columbia River, and then they had a very remote area. And back in the 1940s, they had basically all the people who were living here were relocated. They kicked them off their land. And in fact, where they built Hanford is a Native American sacred site, and they kicked the Native Americans off of there. Just downstream from Hanford is where Kennewick Man was found, the oldest uh, human remains in, most complete human remains in North America, 10,000 years old. And so this is an ancient spot along the ancient river. They build this world's first nuclear reactor there, industrial-sized nuclear reactor, and they're doing crazy research out there. They, of course, we're worried about the Nazis getting the bomb, but the Nazis were also interested in messing with biology and creating super soldiers and super animals. And they had even brought back an extinct ice age creature called the aurochs, which is a gigantic hyper-aggressive bull. And they populated a forest in Europe with these things. And so not only was the Manhattan Project concerned with building the bomb, but at that point in the 1940s, no one knew what radiation really did to creatures. They knew it could induce mutations, but they didn't know what it was. And so they get this guy, Dr. Lauren Donaldson from the University of Washington, to come down and run an animal testing lab. So from day one, Hanford was not only creating weapons-grade plutonium, it's also doing animal testing. And Dr. Donaldson's biggest claim to fame was he created the Donaldson super trout. And through selective breeding, nutrition, and other things, he had created a trout which was eight times stronger and larger than a normal trout. It reached sexual maturity in half the time. It was super survivable. It could swim in salt water and fresh water. And it's a creature that's still alive today. And so the guy that they picked to run the animal testing program at Hanford is this guy whose biggest academic claim to fame is creating super animals, right? So he builds a lab up. We win the war. We build the bombs. And then the Cold War starts immediately. And the Russians start grabbing Nazi scientists at the end of the war. So America starts grabbing Nazi scientists as well under Operation Paperclip. And things start going weird. And at Hanford, they're like like the green run is this 
test that they removed the filters off the nuclear stacks and exposed the local population to radiation and didn't tell anyone about it. And it was only through Freedom of Information Act after everyone started getting cancer that they copped to the fact that they had done this, right? And so Hanford has got over 200 buildings dedicated to research. And today, this is something that I just found out, there is a thing on the Hanford Reservation today, which is called the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And what they're doing there is they are looking for anomalies in the time-space continuum. I'm not even making oh, it up. Like you can look up. How did you find that? The and Freedom so, of Information Act? You know, I do a lot of research on Google Earth, and I recognize there's a strange facility there. And so, because most of Hanford's been closed down because uh, the Cold War's over, and so we produced enough plutonium to produce over 60,000 nuclear weapons. Anyway, so... You know, I'm doing the. I'm looking at it because I'm going to take a trip out there this weekend, and I was like, "What the heck is this thing? It's got these two arms coming out of it that are three kilometers long each, and they're detecting gravitational wave anomalies in the time-space continuum." Anyway, so crazy stuff is going on out at Hanford, and I found some oral histories by a guy named Bill Bear who took over the biological testing. Donaldson went to the South Pacific with like Keeney Atoll and the disastrous Castle Bravo test that went on down there and was five megaton bomb turned into a 15 megaton bomb and irradiated this whole swath of land down there. It's what created the whole Godzilla mythology. So Donaldson's in the South Pacific doing all that stuff. And Bear is here in Hanford and he's, they can test a thousand large animals here at a time at Hanford. They, they I've seen propaganda films where they call it the atomic zoo. He tells the story of how they had 50 alligators that they were testing. And he holds up this picture of the device that they were using to irradiate these apex predators with. One night, six of the alligators outsmart the scientists and they escape into the Columbia River. And this is a historical fact. There's newspaper articles about it and everything else. So there are six experimental irradiated apex predators swimming around on the Columbia River. For six months, they're sending out this covert army hunting team. And they eventually capture and kill four of these creatures. And there are two that are still at large. And even in these interviews with Bill Bear, he says, yeah, like in the 80s, I was getting calls from guys at Fish and Wildlife asking me if I knew anything about alligators in the Columbia. And I told him no, and I hung up on him. <laughs> and he laughs about it in the interview. And so, like, they're clearly doing crazy stuff. Can I, can I just interject real quickly? Why they were dealing with alligators and I, I'm not because I'm smart. I think I heard you say this on a prior one was for nuclear facilities, you know, with waterways, they had porpoises there as kind of protection so that they, their sonar could pick up spies trying to come in, right, basically? Yeah. Okay. So right now, a quarter of the U.S. nuclear stockpile is guarded by dolphins. And the reason why is because sonar can't tell the difference between a tuna and a sea lion and a Soviet diver coming in to infiltrate your facility. Mm. Many of our nuclear facilities are in waterways. And so dolphins, they've been using them since 1958. What they do is they train them to attach a device to these divers that inflates a balloon and brings them to the surface. And the Navy scoops them up and then, you know, gathers intelligence. That's incredible. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And so they recognize. And in fact, Hanford had four Nike missile launch sites. And Nike missiles are surface-to-air missiles that are designed to take out Russian bombers and they're nuclear-tipped warheads. And the thought was it's better to detonate a nuclear weapon and destroy bombers over U.S. populations than have those bombers destroy our strategic locations, mm. right? So, But these uh, Nike missile sites are guarded by dogs because in their reports they say a dog is worth 10 soldiers in terms of being able to detect enemies on the perimeter. So like you said, you can't bring dolphins into fresh water. And Hanford has got 90 miles of river coastline. So if you're a zealous cold warrior and no holds barred, think outside the box, you ask yourself, what is the best riverine predator in the world? And it is the black jaguar. A black jaguar can hold its breath for 15 minutes and can eat underwater. It can swim for a mile in open ocean. It uh, has the ability to kill a caiman alligator with a single bite to the back of the head. It's got night vision that's six times better than a human being. And it always, always, always instinctively drags its prey to shore, which is exactly what these guys want, right? And so 
what may have happened is they had a Jaguar Sentinel program going on at Hanford. And I have to tell you that Bill Baer was a World War II veteran and his specialty was amphibious warfare. Like that's what he did. And so you've got this guy out there and he's got these alligators and they're looking for how do we protect literally our first and most sensitive nuclear site in America, like bar none, like by the time the Cold War was over, there were nine nuclear reactors there going full tilt. And what we think happened is they were testing and maybe modifying these Jaguars at Hanford. And just like the alligators, they outsmarted the scientists and escaped. And just like the alligators, they couldn't recapture them all. We've had stories of the Clickitat ape cat in people's driveways with a baby cat next to it, like a kit, a black kit. We've had hunters say they've seen this thing in their scope and they didn't fire because they thought it was an endangered species. So, yeah, if you are a jaguar that's escaped from a top secret military nuclear facility in eastern Washington, you're not going to go north, east or south deeper into the desert. You're going to head to the west where the rainforest is, where there is abundant cover and prey and all of the habitat you could possibly want. And so, you know, if you are looking for a, you know, still within the physical realm, not calling in any kind of supernatural outside influences, it could very well be that the Clickitat ape cat is a legacy of the Cold War, something that escaped from this top secret nuclear facility. And, and with the reason that people thought it was a panther, not a jaguar, is because panthers are more, you know, likely to be, you know, in America versus jaguars or, or what? Well, you know, I think when we talk about big cats, I don't think people are making that big of a distinction. And so, like, a lot of times uh, we'll call mountain lions panthers. Mm. But panthers are also the name that they give to, uh, like, black panthers in in the Amazon. And so panther is is synonymous. Mm. Okay. And that's something you kind of cobbled together, right? Yeah. Okay. Wow. (laughs) Well, I I caught wind. I saw this report that says Hanford is the largest cleanup site in America. Like there is no place that is more hazardous than Hanford because for, you know, 60 years they were producing plutonium there and not just the radiation, but all the chemical byproducts of that process, they were producing it in industrial scale. Like it is, it is America's Chernobyl, right? Yeah. In fact, (laughs) there are stories of, I heard about this guy whose job it is, is to track nuclear bunny poop. So the rabbits on the Hanford Reservation hang up by the barrels of nuclear waste because they're warm and they get irradiated and then they hop all over. I mean, you have to understand Hanford is enormous. It is half the size of Rhode Island. Uh, it is 600 square miles. It's a gigantic. Oh, my place. God. And so Jesus. these rabbits, you know, they become irradiated and then their poop is irradiated. But these creatures are eaten by local predators like coyotes and cougars and everything else. And so... They're tracking all that stuff. But the thing that sort of brought me to it was that I had heard this report that they had uncovered this train car filled with the carcasses. That goes back to the train that we heard. <laughs> yeah. right. Okay. And, um, and these animals were, you know, they were supposed to have been incinerated, but they were never incinerated. So anyway, it's a crazy, crazy, like the things that were going on there, like we can't even imagine what they were doing. And, you know, I've found some Freedom of Information Act requests and, you know, there was some guy at the Department of Energy when Stranger Things came out. He was like a low-level social media guy. Paul Lester was his name. And when Stranger Things came out, he said, well, you know, the Department of Energy doesn't do research into parallel dimensions. Ha, 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 Yeah. <laughs> well, the Secretary of Energy wrote him an email, as did a woman named Rachel Carr, who worked for Senator Feinstein and as a scientific fellow and as a science advisor for her, said, yeah, in fact, the Department of Energy does fund research in multiverses, pocket dimensions, you know, uh, hidden universes, all these different kind of things that that is part of their active uh, research that they're doing. And they were absolutely doing that kind of research at Hanford because you had access to this is a place where they are literally messing with the fabric of reality. They're creating elements that don't exist in nature and they're doing even now today looking for anomalies in the space-time continuum with laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory. So the kinds of things that are going on out there are unbelievable. And I will tell you, so we talked about that Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting in 1947. Well, in 1944, 
there were UFO sightings around the Hanford nuclear site. So there have been UFO sightings around Hanford from before UFOs were a thing in America. And so it's unclear to me whether the reason why the UFOs are here or the reason why Hanford is where it's at is because this is such a strange place to begin with and it kind of attracted that kind of energy or that kind of energy is just another reason why things are emerging here. Who do you talk to, James, to share your ideas with, besides podcasters like me, but do you reach out to other maybe documentarians or certain people that are are searchers and have kind of a a different take than the average person? Well, you know, we've got the North American Bigfoot Museum over in Boring, Oregon, and so I'm friends with those guys. And when we get a hot Bigfoot case, I'll give them a call. The Big River Paranormal Group out of Portland does ghost research. When we get ghost reports, I'll give them a call. Like you said, I've, I've only been at this for maybe a year and a half. And, and so that's why I'm going on these podcasts. I mean, to me, this is such incredible fun. And there's so many interesting things going on in here. I'm an old adventurer. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a, an investigator in any kind of real way. And so, you know, I am trying to get the word out, like, come to the Columbia River Gorge. Check it out. I'll, you know, if you're a legitimate researcher, I'll show you the cool places. Like, we'll go to the caves and we'll go to the mountains and we'll go to the mesas and the deserts and the rain. One of the people, actually, and I think Michelle, Michelle Fried, uh, who's uh, a publicist that connected me to you, she had, I'm forgetting the name, but it's two filmmakers. They did a flash of beauty. Yeah, it was about Brett, Bigfoot. Brett, Brett's been out here and we've had... Oh, okay. I was going to say, all right, cool. Because they're, they're doing their last, you know, they did the first one. The second one, which is kind of the paranormal reveal, yeah. is, uh, is, is was they're supposed to release later this year. Those guys yeah. are great because, you know, their respect for the material and their respect for the witnesses was re- really impressed me. And yeah, so they've come out and we've talked about a series of filmings out here and taking a look at some different things. But uh, if anybody wants to get a hold of me, you can email staff at margiesoutdoorstore.com, staff at margiesoutdoorstore.com, and uh, send me a note, and we'd be happy to talk to you. But really, you know, for me, the fun of it is sharing this, these mysteries. Like, there's such joy and intrigue and just amazing experiences to be had out there, out here. And I love talking to folks like you. I love exposing, you know, your audience to these kinds of ideas because this is a place that needs like real research that needs some folks who are serious about this stuff to come out and take a look and see what we've got going on. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they will. I mean, cause um, you pose some very unique uh, hypotheses that are, that are very intriguing and not beyond the realm of uh, <laughs> believability. <laughs> I'm throwing out these words, but I'm just saying what you're, I guess the short answer is what you're saying makes a lot of sense and could definitely be true. <laughs> so it's great to, to get that out. I know we're at the end of this. I appreciate your time, James. Tell us if someone wants to visit and come out where you're located to, to Margie's Outdoor Store. Is there a website or if they want to come out and, and maybe even hire you to take them on a tour or something? I don't know if you do that, but how, how do they connect with you and your store? So Margie'sOutdoor.com or Margie'sOutdoorStore.com, both of those addresses work. They'll take you to our website. And so just like you, a lot of folks are asking, well, what are you hearing in these reports? So I started putting together things I call arcane adventure maps. And it's like a full color brochure, basically a a guide with some of my own illustrated maps in there and uh, a lot of images of the things that we found and some actual transcriptions of some of the paranormal reports. And, you know, for 10 bucks, you can have a weekend's worth of awesome adventures at uh, different paranormal hotspots around the gorge. So that's one of the ways that I'm trying to get the word out. I'm working right now with a a tour bus company, and they've asked me to write a script, take people through the gorge, and, you know, starting in the rainforest by the waterfalls and then coming across through the desert over to the petroglyphs and the Mystic Mesa out there, Horse Thief Butte, and then explore some of the ghost towns and and see some of this apocalyptic geology. So we're talking about putting together like a half-day tour of the gorge, probably 130 miles from the trip. So is that happening soon, do you think? Or is that like something next year? Or? Uh, well, hopefully we'll be able to get the back half of this summer season. And then folks have also asked me if I'd be willing to put on some kind of paranormal festival out here in the Gorge. And uh, just get getting a lot of support like that, my fellow business owners. Oh, that'd be fun. That'd be great. That'd be excellent. Yeah, but I will tell you, if you come out here, even if you don't see an ape cat or a Sasquatch or UFO, 
it is an absolutely magical experience. And there's no place like it. I, I can't even, I wish I could describe it. I, you know, if, I wish we had some pictures I could show your audience of just what a jaw-droppingly beautiful place it is. And it's unlike any place else in the world. Well, I'll have the link in the show notes, obviously, to your website. So they'll get, be able to maybe get a glimpse there. But yeah. great interview, James. So much for your time t- uh, today. And it's, only been, it's hard to believe it's only been 18 months. And it seems like there's a lot more that you're going to unearth and, and explore and find out in the years ahead. So yeah. I stand by what I said earlier. It'd be interesting to talk to you in a year or two and see what's new and, and, and how your, your vision has your, your, your view of the world of the paranormal and, and what really is the truth has changed over that time. Let's call it a date. Cool. All right, James. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Afraid of Nothing podcast. Please subscribe and like us on Facebook. Until next time, stay scared. Hey, you're still here? Great. Then why not listen to another episode? Visit afraidofnothingpodcast.com to peruse all the shows. That's afraidofnothingpodcast.com. And while you're there, click the coffee cup icon to buy me a coffee and leave a review. I'll give you a shout out in an upcoming episode. And the world will know how swell you are.